Hi, writers. Welcome to another episode of our podcasts about writing. This is Jim Thayer. I have the pleasant task of announcing that I'm going on a vacation and so won't be uploading new episodes until after I return in about three weeks. I don't know if I deserve a holiday, but my wife Patty sure does, and I'm going to tag along with her. These podcasts episodes have been presented in a certain order that I hope makes sense. If you're new to these broadcasts, uh, I'm glad you're here, and please consider listening to early episodes where I talk about writing topics I think are important. I look forward to my vacation, I say by way of understatement, but I'll also look forward to returning to this microphone for more episodes after I return. Last time we talked about modifiers. Let's continue for a few moments. Here's a funny little topic about modifiers, the illogical modifier. This common writing goof can be called the very unique error. A desire exists among us writers to modify words that shouldn't be modified. Something is unique, it's one of a kind, or it's not. Something can be almost unique, but can't logically be very unique. To say something is very unique is the equivalent of saying something is higher than the top, or lower than the bottom, or better than perfect. Thousands of these examples exist, and you'll read them here and there uh, perfectly clear. (laughs) It's a nice phrase. It sounds nice, but a window is either clear or it isn't. The uttermost limits. The opening introduction. A gory bloodbath. A new classic. How about the phrase, a false pretense? I forget where I read that. If a pretense is the act of alleging falsely, according to my dictionary, then wouldn't a false pretense be true? Here's another phrase, advance warning. A warning delivered after the fact is known, I believe, as Monday morning quarterbacking. A convicted felon. If we're guilty until proven innocent, there shouldn't be too many convictionless felons running around. Fall down. Gravity tends to make this modifier down unnecessary. Close proximity, as opposed to, what, distant proximity? The sum total. This really gets the point across, and and then some. A shared dialogue. When was the last time we heard of a a shared monologue? Well, I've written these down, uh, and you'll see them once in a while. A, a, A word that doesn't need modifying, and to modify it makes it ridiculous. But here's something Uh, important about modifiers, the needless modifier. The technique is to let the word you've chosen do its work without being weakened by a needless modifier. The slice of sky is a stronger phrase than the small slice of sky. 
a splinter of hope is better than a, a small splinter of hope. Splinters are small. A brief glimpse. Uh, glimpses are always brief. That's what a br glimpse is. And a, a brief glimpse is redundant. Otherwise, a glimpse is a look or a stare. I butted in immediately. To butt in is to do so immediately. You don't need immediately. He screamed loudly. He ran quickly. Needless modifiers lead to uh, tepid writing. Modifiers can strengthen a sentence, making the picture clearer for the reader. Uh, she ran jubilantly across the pasture. He spoke hesitantly, unsure of his pronunciations. But a lot of the time, writers place a modifier in a sentence that weakens the image rather than strengthens it. The writer is either using the adjective or adverb for a rhythmic beat in the sentence or to overly describe the sentence, uh, putting too fine a point on the description. Usually, the fewer words that are used to describe something, the stronger the sentence is. A short sentence uh, leads us writers to use stronger words. Sometimes modifiers are just padding the word gently may be the worst offender. She gently lay the saddle over the horse. She gently pulled off her earrings. He gently pulled the apple from the tree. She gently patted the child's head. <laughs> he nodded gently. The word gently doesn't add anything to these sentences. It doesn't clarify anything. It's just a word put there to be put there. Firmly is another one. Uh, the word firmly. He firmly pressed the gas pedal. He gripped the baseball firmly. He nodded firmly. The words slowly and quickly also appear willy-nilly in many sentences. She slowly opened the curtains. He slowly pulled his wallet from his pocket. The fish slowly swam upriver. The tide slowly receded. He nodded slowly. Here, too, nothing is added to the meaning of these sentences by the word slowly. And what does quickly add to, to, to these sentences? He quickly drank the milk. He quickly raised the bet. He quickly cleaned his plate. The dog walked quickly over to the fire hydrant. He nodded quickly. How about the word slightly? His head hurt slightly. He leaned back slightly. He bowed slightly. The vase tilted slightly forward. He nodded slightly. Quietly is another modifier rarely needed. She walked quietly across the gym. He quietly opened the window. He quietly wound the clock. Another one is closely. The dogs ran closely together. He studied the newspaper closely. These words are, often aren't needed. They're tepid modifiers, and they, they can leach your image of vigor. Rather, they quietly but firmly leach your image of vigor. Stack them together and you'll see the effect.
He gently but firmly placed the flowers quietly on the table. Here's a test regarding these modifiers. Does this adjective or adverb add to or clarify the image? If not, leave it out. Here's more on modifiers, the obvious modifier. Adjectives are good unless they're bad. A good adjective adds to or clarifies the image. A bad adjective just pads the sentence without adding to the reader's knowledge. The green Christmas tree. Uh, unless Grandpa stored last year's tree up in the attic, bent on economy, and has brought it down this year, all Christmas trees are green. The skinny coyote. Uh, I have coyotes in my neighborhood once in a while. I have never, not once in my life, seen a chubby coyote. The solemn crowd at the funeral. Every funeral I've ever been to, and there have been mercifully few, has been solemn. Because there's a corpse nearby. To tell the reader a funeral is solemn is to waste an otherwise fine six-letter word. A solemn New Year's Eve party. Now there's a plot point worth expanding. Here are a couple more modifiers that just pad a phrase. A painful toothache. We can file this under the we can file this one at the Department of Redundancy Department. The slippery bar of soap, the sharp needle, the tart pomegranate seeds, the the or, the orange carrot, the small grains of rice, the heavy gray anvil, the red, white, and blue American flag. The round, brown basketball. A furry raccoon. The hurricane's strong winds. The reader isn't being entertained or instructed or informed by these adjectives. There's no reason to tell the reader a basketball is round or that rice grains are small. Here's the test. Does the modifier add to or clarify the image? If so, consider using it. If not, leave it out. Why do we writers sometimes add meaningless adjectives? I think it's because as we compose, we, we form the image in our minds, bringing up thoughts of a, of a basketball which is round and brown and has those little bumps all over it. And then having formed the full image in our brains, we automatically transfer it onto the screen by typing all of it onto the screen. The roundness, brownness, bumpiness, forgetting that nobody needs to be told a basketball is round, brown, or bumpy. We, as writers, should be vigilant against these needless, vapid modifiers. Another topic on modifiers, the dangling modifier. That's a term of art in writing. A dangling modifier is a word or phrase that modifies the wrong word or phrase. Groucho Marx's famous dangling modifier is, One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got into my pajamas, I don't know. 
Here's a couple other dangling modifiers. Running along the sidewalk, the purse bounced against her leg. This should, of course, be running along the sidewalk. She felt the purse bounce against her leg. How about this dangling modifier? After reading it, the book remained unconvinced. And, of course, it should be changed to, after reading the book, he found it unconvincing. Here's the most common dangling modifier. You'll hear this every day. Hopefully, peace will come to the Congo. Hopefully, the weather will be better tomorrow. As written, peace is hoping when the writer means that he or all of us hope peace will come. And as written, the, the weather is hoping for better weather, when the writer means he or she hopes. Here are a couple other dangling modifiers. Relieved of your work responsibilities, your home is a place to rest and relax. The experiment was a failure not having studied the lab manual sufficiently. Smashed flat by a passing truck, Fido sniffed at what was left of the half-eaten hamburger. <laughs> I saw the garden looking through the window. The closet was empty, having packed everything into the suitcase. Sizzling on the grill, Julie smelled the Copper River salmon. Having bought the harpsichord, it now needed tuning. Running up the stairs, the door was locked. Forgetting to buy gas, the car wouldn't start. Hopping quickly through the vegetable garden, I saw a toad. Eating too much, my stomach was upset. I have written some howling, dangling modifiers in the past, I think I've caught them, or my editors have caught them. Uh, and I've thought about why we would write such a funny uh, sentence that contains a dangling modifier. And I think the reason is that uh, composing a sentence is often slow, and we sometimes forget the first phrase of a sentence. At least that's why I do it. I sure hope that mine, my dangling modifiers have been caught. Dangling modifiers are often laugh-out-loud funny, and they give the reader much pleasure, but not the kind of pleasure the writer had hoped to give. Let's change the subject. Still talking about words. Uh, I think our goal as novelists should be to make our words a clear window to the story. Sometimes we choose a word that is a reach word. I call them reach words or a word too far. Santa Claus chuckles and the fairy godmother's eyes twinkle. But almost no other character in fiction should chuckle or twinkle or saunter or snigger. Some words are just too much. These words, they're often verbs. Sound like kitchen pots banging together to the reader. They suggest the writer wanted to be writerly, to do a little literary strutting, and so reached for the th thesaurus. Stacy walked just 
wouldn't do so. Stacy ends up ambling or tramping or trudging over to her sister to hear a funny joke. But Stacy laughed isn't enough, so Stacy chortles or snickers or titters or cackles or guffaws. How do we know when a word clanks? If the word calls attention to itself rather than to the action or object it is intending to convey, it's probably the wrong word. We feel sad for Mary when she cries or weeps. But we wonder about the writer if Mary blubbers, snivels, whimpers, or keens, or squalls. These words reach too far, and they bring the reader out of the story, which is the last thing a writer wants, other than smallpox, of course. How do we as writers end up with a word that clanks rather than communicates? A word that, <laughs> that blats, chirs, crumps, skirls, ululates, or, or caterwauls rather than conveys. Writers know that some words are powerful and memorable and should be used, used only once in a novel. Readers have remarkable capacities for remembering these, these strong words as they go through the book. Preened on page 30 is fine, but if it appears again on page 130, the reader will think, ha, caught you which gives the reader a lot of pleasure. So writers wisely avoid the repetition of memorable words, and we are grateful uh, Peter Roger's London medical practice didn't keep him busy two centuries ago. The word infallible is fine once. Singed is great once. A bird may warble but only once in a novel. After that, another word is needed to keep the reader's nose in the book. But many words, common verbs for common actions, can be used again and again without the reader even thinking about the word. Stacy laughed on page 12, and she can laugh on page 15 and, and again on page 20, and every five pages through the novel because Stacy's big fun and the reader will enjoy her merriment without giving a thought to the word that conveyed it, laughed. Stacy needn't snort, whoop, convulse, or cachinate. The same is true for other verbs, run, walked, jumped, yelled, and a host of others. These words don't stick in the reader's mind. The king of common verbs is said. Almost every time our characters speak, said should be the verb. He stole my car, Joe said. I swear I put that lottery ticket in the recycle bin, Amber said. He said, she said, grandma said. Same with asked. Has a recycle truck come by this morning, her husband asked. Readers never tire of the dialogue tags he said or she said or Joe said or Alex asked because readers never even think about them. They're invisible. All that the reader realizes is that a character is speaking. The reader pays attention to the dialogue, not the verb phrase he said. Usually there's 
no need to reach for the thesaurus for said and other common verbs. The reader sees through them to the story. The reader registers the action or the dialogue and the setting, not the ink on the page. For most writers, our words should be transparent. The reader should see the story. This transparency should be the object of most fiction writing. We should keep the writer in the story by using words that are clear and simple. Uh, Repeating common words in our fiction isn't weak writing, it's strong writing. We don't have to have our character chuckle and amble. Uh, The character can laugh and walk. One of the most fun things about reading a biography is learning how the the person deci- uh, found his or her life path. Sometimes it's nice to know how writers did so. Here is uh, W.H. Auden. He's regarded by many as one of the great writers of the 20th century. Here's Auden. One afternoon in March, at half past three, when walking in a plowed field with a friend, kicking a little stone, he turned to me and said, Tell me, do you write poetry? I never had, and said so, but I knew that very moment what I wished to do. Isn't that nice? That's W.H. Auden. Here's E.B. White, who wrote uh, uh, Strunk and White, the manual on... uh, writing, and also Charlotte's Web and other novels. He liked the sound of his brother Stanley's Oliver typewriter. Quote, it was the noisy excitement connected with borrowing and using this machine that encouraged me to be a writer. And listen to Stephen King in his terrific book on writing. This is Stephen King. Due to health problems, uh, including, including those caused by tonsils that were eventually removed, he missed much of the first grade. Quote, here's Stephen King, quote, Most of that year I spent either in bed or housebound. I read my way through approximately six tons of comic books, progressed to Tom Swift and Dave Dawson, a heroic World War II pilot whose various planes were always Quote, clawing for altitude, end quote. Then moved on to Jack London's blood-curdling animal tales. At some point, I began to write my own stories. Imitation preceded creation. I would copy Combat Casey comics word for word in my Blue Horse tablet, sometimes adding my own descriptions where they seemed appropriate. Stephen King continues... Eventually, I showed one of these copycat hybrids to my mother, and she was charmed. I remember her slightly amazed smile, as if she was unable to believe a kid of hers could be so smart. Practically a damned prodigy, for God's sake. I had never seen that look on her face before, not on my account anyway, and I absolutely loved it. She asked me if I had made the story up myself, and I was forced to admit that I had copied most of it out of a funny book. She seemed disappointed, and that drained away much of my pleasure. At last, she handed back my tablet. Write on your own, Stevie, she said. Those combat Casey funny books are just junk. 
He's always knocking someone's teeth out. (laughs) I bet you could do better. Write one of your own. I remember an immense feeling of possibility at the idea, as if I had been ushered into a vast building filled with closed doors and had been given leave to open any I liked. I eventually wrote a story about four magic animals who rode around in an old car helping out little kids. You didn't copy this, she asked when she had finished. I said no, I had not. She said it was good enough to be in a book. Nothing anyone has said to me since has made me feel any happier. That's Stephen King. Isn't that a wonderful anecdote? How he became a writer? How did, how did you become a writer? It's fun to think about. We have arrived at the end of this episode. I'm off on my vacation, and please don't worry, I'm going to have a great time. I hope these next few weeks find you happy and healthy. See you when I get back. And uh, and until then, please keep tapping those keys.